Another fall, another iPhone launch. Botley Full Money starts now. I'm Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined over the airwaves by Motley Fool analyst Tim Byers. Tim, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dylan. Fully caffeinated, ready to go. More iPhones, as usual. <laughs> it's just the steady march and the constant truth of tech. There will always be more iPhones, Tim. We are talking today about the iPhone unveiling, which happened yesterday, and another tech event this week. We have Salesforce's annual Dreamforce conference going down in San Francisco. But we're going to start with a regularly scheduled hardware update. We got a look at the iPhone 15 and the iPhone 15 Plus yesterday. That took a lot of the headlines, Tim, with this Apple event. When you start digging into some of the details for these phones, what sticks out to you? I mean, I'll go under the hood first here because I think a lot of things that we see in the iPhones, they are incremental. They're kind of incremental awesomeness, if we want to be honest. The improved cameras, uh, the better battery life, the increased processing power. But I'll say Apple should get more credit for how much work it does in silicon and building incredibly powerful chips. And I think this is a heck of an advertisement, Dylan, for the ARM IPO, because whether you realize it or not, Apple builds its silicon, its newest silicon, and in this case, when we're talking about the newer iPhones, the Bionic chips, on top of the ARM platform. It's highly power efficient, has a long history of being a a platform of significance for mobile devices and Apple's taken full advantage of that and done a lot of their own engineering to make incredible chipsets. So a lot of the things that we're seeing in the iPhone 15, all of the iPhone 15 models Dylan are going to be based on that uh, A16 Bionic chip and there's a lot of stuff in here. Um, what they said was two high performance cores that use 20% less power, four high uh, efficiency cores. So there's a six core CPU. That's a lot of compute power. There's a five core graphics processing unit uh, that has 50% more memory. So that's for streaming, that's for gaming. And then you have a 16 core neural engine. You know, for uh, computing up to what this is what Apple says. I'm quoting from the press release here: 17 trillion operations per second. Uh, that sounds a lot, like a lot, Dylan. Yeah, that sounds lot. like a lot. <laughs> um, so the silicon is is very impressive here. I think ARM has to be very very happy to see this announcement coming out. Yeah, and I love that we had an ARM discussion earlier this week on Motley Fool Money. If you want a little bit of a mini dive into that company, check out the episode from earlier this week. We have that there. Tim, looking at the details, you mentioned the incremental innovation, and I am someone who currently has an iPhone XR or 10R, however you want to say it, whatever your whatever your nomenclature is, and I feel like every year. The details feel incremental in what we get with these phones. But if you've been sure. sitting on the sidelines using the same tech for a couple years, all of a sudden the new phone looks like a spaceship. And I was looking at what we had here compared to what I have in my pocket and saying, this looks like a much more powerful device, looks like some heavy investments in cameras. And you start to see that separate a little bit year to year to year over a three or five year period. There's no doubt. And 
this is not a contest, so I'm not trying to one-up <laughs> you here, Dylan, but I have the original iPhone SE. I can't even upgrade to iOS 16, let alone wow. iOS 17, which is what they, they rolled out here during during the conference. But it's a very good phone. Like It does the work. It's very old, but yeah. I mean, if if it looks like a spaceship to you with your, you know, iPhone 10 design, it must look like an alien world <laughs> to me if I get a chance to see this thing. But you're right. I mean, incremental innovations do add up, and I think the basics. When you're talking about a mobile device, it is important to remember that the basics really do matter, and there are some basics that are fundamental to a mobile device like an iPhone. A great camera, a highly efficient battery, so that you don't have to carry around like a power brick, which, I'll admit this, I have to do that. I have to run my iPhone on battery-saving mode all the time, because the battery is essentially dead. But I'm not replacing it, because it's still a really great phone. But these things are important, and every new iteration Apple makes improvements to make that camera just a little bit better, to improve the software, to increase things like error correction, resolution, giving you more options as you use that camera. It it is amazing what these little tweaks add up to over the course of, of generations. And people will upgrade to them because they do like the way that it feels in the hand, the things that they can do with it. And it doesn't take too many generations to feel like it's a seismic upgrade from, say, like, let's just say, like the iPhone 12 to the 15. And the population of iPhones out there is big enough that these incremental upgrades do become meaningful to a subset of these populations. So for Apple, I expect this to be driving revenue and earnings for quite some time. Yeah, I think while you might be sitting on the sidelines very happy with an older phone, there are probably going to be some people that are tempted to upgrade based on what we've seen here. Um, and the pricing details here, Tim, iPhone 15 starts at just under $800, goes up to $1,100. The iPhone 15 Plus starts at $900, up to $1,200. So uh, there's going to be some money in it for Apple. And we pay attention to this because it is the big portion of the top line, it's about half their revenue. It's nice to hear that you feel like there is a solid foundation for the company's meal ticket product. There's no doubt in in, in my mind, and I recognize I'm the outlier here, Dylan. I mean, honestly, but there are tens of millions of mobile device users. I mean, this is common now. It, you know, just try to take somebody's mobile device, whether you're talking Android or iOS, it doesn't matter, but just try to take somebody's mobile device for 24 hours. Just strip that away from them and see how they react. I guarantee you they will be more angry, more frustrated, more annoying to be around, because it's sort of like (laughs) an extra appendage. It really is. And because of that, you know, because it is a new habit, that has resulted in what you know many many years ago the coining of the term paradigm shift the introduction of a mobile device a computer in our pocket that we use as a daily companion like a copilot that's a paradigm shift we are not moving away from and so we can keep we can continue to service that market over a long period of time apple can continue to service that market I do think this is something that 
we can look forward to. There's no pressure. Let me put it this way. There is no pressure on Apple to introduce massive breakthroughs. The one thing they don't want to do is introduce something that would break the habit. They want they want it to feel familiar, they want it to feel comfortable, and they want it to feel powerful and attractive. Those are the things that matter. So a giant breakthrough isn't necessarily what you want. What you want is a better version of the familiar, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. And I, I do want to move us from the iPhone discussion to some of the other things they unveiled because iPhone got a lot of headlines, but we also, I think, got a glimpse at how iPhone could play into some of the company's other product ambitions. One of the things that jumped out to me, Tim, was buried in the features for the new iPhone Pro was the ability to record 3D spatial video, which can be later viewed on the company's Vision Pro headsets, which will be arriving in 2024. I feel like right. we've all been kind of wondering with these Vision Pro headsets, like, is the content ecosystem going to be there? It seems like Apple's maybe saying, we're going to put you in a spot where you can contribute to that content ecosystem. I mean, everybody is part of Ready Player One now, right? <laughs> That's right. That I mean, that's that's where we are. Instead of one master creator of so, for those who don't know, and I actually I'd never seen Ready Player One, uh, Dylan, but it's a popular science fiction book that was made into a movie in 2018, and the idea was the creator of a metaverse has died and has introduced a contest, and the contest is to take over that metaverse and be the new master of the metaverse domain, and so it's a big messy race to see who ultimately wins this and it's a good versus evil battle and all this thing but it it is a it's a metaverse right and so in this particular case you're right like we don't know what the the world that the vision pro which is still to come in 2024 will introduce us to and apple has said hey why don't you tell us so you can map out the world that maybe you want to see inside of the the Vision Pro when it does come out. I think that is brilliant. There are a lot of companies that have profited from user-generated content. This is a way for Apple to get into the user-generated content style. It's not specific. You may be recording things that are in the real world and maybe putting your own spin on it. I mean, I don't know exactly how this is going to work, but it does feel like a little bit of UGC. And if I mean, we all know the company that has profited from this more than any other, and it's YouTube. So this is Apple doing a little judo, taking a page out of the YouTube playbook, and maybe create seeding a little ground. Let's call it for the Vision Pro when it comes out. And already, beta testers are giving the Vision Pro some really good reviews. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be very interesting to see what it comes out with. Now that we've got you know tens of millions of potential devices out there, sort of. World building for the Vision Pro before it even, you know, becomes a product live on the market. Tim, you mentioned Ready Player One. I read it on recommendation from David Gardner, uh, and it was written several years ago uh, before the metaverse yes. really expanded and became uh, what we know it to be today. And part of the big ambitions for big tech companies, it is worth reading. I think if you want to get a sense of what this world could look like, extended out a little bit and, and imagined, uh, it, it is not far off. It turns out from from where some of these companies are looking to go. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating idea. And 
you know, how much we might value things that are not real, but are part of a world in which there are real stakes, which is kind of the message of, of Ready Player One. I definitely think it's, it's worth diving into a little bit because we are entering a, a time when the stakes in the metaverse are getting more and more real, and Apple is going to play a part of that, for sure. How can they not? Largest company in the How world. Can they they not? have to right. have a have have to have a place in that. Tim, from Cupertino to San Francisco, there's another big tech event this week. Salesforce has their annual Dreamforce conference, and that kicked off on Monday. It is being billed uh, on the event page and in materials as the AI event of the year. Do you feel like it is living up to that hype so far? Come on, <laughs> no, of course not. But that is that is Salesforce. If if you don't hear that from Salesforce, that's when you get worried. The hyperbole is just. I mean, those are the table stakes. If you are invested in or following Salesforce, you know you're going to get the hyperbole. If you don't get it, that's when you start scratching your head. So that's just you know that's what's coming, and then you decide, okay, I I know what they've told me, but what's really going on here? So it's definitely not living up to the AI event of the year. No, that would be insane to say that because there's so much AI. Hype that I don't think you can really distinguish. However, there are interesting things that Salesforce is doing. And the primary thing that I think is interesting is they have talked up the Einstein AI platform, which has been around for a while. They've, the Einstein platform has been around. So that's not new. What is new is that they're talking up Einstein AI as kind of a multi layered platform that has. A data cloud attached to it, and there are some interesting integrations that they're talking up with both Snowflake and Databricks. So, in other words, your customers live across, and your customer data lives across a huge number of applications. What if you could use AI to rationalize all that data and then be able to query it and get real insight and do real meaningful things with it? So, creating this highly integrated data cloud does make some sense, and those partnerships might have some legs. So I thought that was interesting, Dylan. And then on the other part of it, on the front end of it, they talked about a thing called the Einstein AI Copilot, which this is something that I, you know, for those who follow the This Week in Tech show that I do with Tim White, Tim and I have been talking about this for a long time. The idea that the ideal use case for AI is as a copilot to you do a thing and then the AI helps you do the thing better by spotting errors or giving you some hints, something to automate and accelerate the work you're doing, not replace it, but do it with you and alongside you. And so this idea of an Einstein AI copilot, I think is completely fascinating to automate and accelerate the work that you do inside the Salesforce suite. That's great. But there is one thing that's missing from it. Which is, it doesn't seem in the press release where they talk about this, Dylan. Mm -hmm. They mentioned Slack a grand total of twice, and I I really expected like once you got to this co-pilot type of tool, I thought that's a pr that's the thing that's going to make Slack infinitely more useful, and that still may come. 
But I was really expecting to see that in in the announcements and kind of the rollout of this. And the fact that I didn't see it makes me go, I, where is it? I'm glad you brought up Slack, Tim, because this is the 21st time that Salesforce has hosted Dreamforce. And it is generally when they show both what is a priority for them as a business and yes. the current state of the tech landscape and what is most important there. And right. Slack was an incredibly big, splashy acquisition back in 2021. And I feel like we've all been kind of waiting for some updates there to understand how it fits into Salesforce's business, how they benefit from what Salesforce can bring down to it, and how it plugs yep. in. And, and I don't know that we've really gotten that. Not yet. Well, I'm going to say maybe we are starting to get it, but it's not, I haven't seen any. Big red flashing signs that says, "Okay, here it is. Slack is materially improved, and here are the five ways it is materially improved, and what it's going to do for Salesforce." That could be coming. Uh, it could be something that's in development. It could be something we don't yet see. But I think you're right to say, "I I'd love to see where we're going with this." But for right now. What we see is that this was a very big acquisition. We're waiting for it to add all of the value we thought it was going to add. And the fact that we're still waiting is a slight concern. But it may very well be, Dylan, that the AI strategy that Salesforce is pursuing will ultimately get us there, where Salesforce is using Slack as the gateway to all of its other suite of applications, and the co-pilot exists with Slack first, and Slack is your entryway. If that happens, I will eat my words and say, Great job, Salesforce. This acquisition was absolutely worth it. But we're not seeing that yet. And I really thought we were going to see a little bit more of it at Dreamforce. And the fact that we aren't seeing it, it just leaves me with some questions that I wish I didn't have to ask. There's still another day or two of content, so we'll see. But I'm with you, we'll Tim. We'll see. I'm, I'm a little impatient. That's all it is. Tim Byers, thank you so much for helping me keep tabs on all things tech and tech events related. Always great talking to you. Thanks, Dylan. Tim mentioned This Week in Tech on the show. That's his weekly program on our premium members-only live stream. If you're a Motley Fool US Premium member, you can access the show and the daily stream at live.fool.com. And if you want to become a premium member, you can learn more about our flagship product, Stock Advisor, and get a free report, five stocks under $49, for free at fool.com slash report. That's right, five stocks totally free at fool.com slash report. Coming up, we go from talking about Apple, one of Warren Buffett's favorite companies, to another, reinsurance. Motley Fool analyst Bill Mann joins Ricky Mulvey to break down the fundamentals and one misconception about Florida's home insurance woes. Bill, you were having a conversation on the morning show, which is on the Motley Fool live stream, which is available to members of any Motley Fool service. Just a quick plug there about property and ca casualty insurance. And I thought it was interesting, so I wanted to talk about it on Motley Fool Money. You're the one who thought it was interesting. I'm serious because no, it's timely. You got the the storms and hurricanes in Florida. You have insurance, you have insurers leaving the state. It's 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 gonna be a big deal, even if it seems a little boring on the surface. So we're gonna make it interesting, hopefully. I guess I can't promise that, but we'll we'll try. Send emails to podcasts at fool.com. Podcasts with an S at fool.com. So 
I guess now I can just kind of lean on you. Can you explain how property and casualty insurance generally works before before getting to the Florida stuff? Yeah, so we can talk about the structure a little bit. I mean, a lot of people tend to think of property and casualty uh, insurance companies as being as as being really worried about claims, and they really, I mean, obviously in the the continuum of pay money out and not pay money out, they'd rather not pay money out. But the way that they the insurance companies uh, work is a type of balance where they're trying to find risks across geographies, across types of claims, across types of properties, and they have a very broad uh, set of risks that they are facing. That's the front line of the property and casualty insurance. Are we are we still are, are are we holding up? Are you still interested? I'm still interested. Yeah, you're you're explaining the first part and then you're checking in. I thought there was a second part. There is a second and a third part, which is this: when big claims come in, and they usually come in the form of natural disasters. You have hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes will sometimes get to be large enough. These are things that are called super catastrophes. When you have a super catastrophe, and super catastrophe. Is not designed is not determined by the weather. It's determined by the size of the overall loss from an event. And so, when you have a catastrophe that's large enough, that's going to become a problem for the frontline insurers. So, the frontline insurers they also have insurance, and very fancily enough, that's called reinsurance. One of the surprising things to me is Berkshire Hathaway, which owns Geico. This is the big bit. Like, even though they do car insurance, which which may be your experience with with that organization, this is the bigger business for for Berkshire Hathaway is the reinsurance stuff. Yeah, you can think of reinsurance as being something where they don't pay it out often, but when they do pay out, they pay out huge. And so it would work like this: a frontline insurer, and let's call it Travelers, just as as an example, has exposure in an area that has suffered a catastrophe of above a billion dollars. So beyond the billion dollars, the reinsurance company will pay their claims for them. So it's a really high hurdle, but it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, I go to the image of picking up nickels in front of a steamroller for this. Yes, exactly right. But if you can do the math right, you might be able to pick up enough nickels. Then there's the other side of this, which I think is now the third side, which is the reinsurance for reinsurers, which I didn't know existed until you're talking about it on on the morning show. Yeah, so you can imagine if you have so like Hurricane Ian when it hit the west coast of Florida last year caused somewhere in the range of sixty billion dollars in damages. So if you can think about a reinsurance company, even one as big as Berkshire Hathaway, every dollar above that billion dollar threshold, that's that's money going going out very quickly. So they in turn want a balance, and that balance comes from a reinsurance for the reinsurers, which are called called retrocessionaires and most of them that operate in the US are based in Bermuda and they will be something like anything above 20 billion dollars in damage for a you know for a reinsurer we've got you beyond that and it could be on a one to one basis like you pay some we pay some it depends on the coverage but there are for the mega super catastrophes there are the retrocessionaires and you can imagine for them they pay out almost never but when they do pay out they pay out in huge dollar amounts see that's kind of weird to me if i were to just say hey we have an organization that pays out 
$20 billion on an unlikely event. Where do you think it's located? We're going to give you three options, Chicago, New York City, or Bermuda. I wouldn't pick the third option. <laughs> That's right. Bermuda is kind of like the Hartford of the reinsurance world. I mean, it's yeah. a it, it, that is there are laws, there are reasons why you know so many of the reinsurance companies are based there, but a lot of the retrocessionaires are based there as well. Okay, Bill. So, what's going on in Florida? So, a lot of people point to the severity of damage that's happening in Florida doing, uh, due to climate change as being the issue. And that's probably a longer tail issue. There are two very specific issues in Florida. The first of which is that Florida has 9% of the nation's insurance policies and 79% of the insurance lawsuits in the country. And it has to do with basically a loophole that was set up that allows contractors to sue on the behalf of homeowners. And it turns out when you allow them to do that and you have a law on the books that allows the, that requires the defendant to play, to pay plaintiff's fees, that that becomes a pretty attractive line of business. Yeah. You get Pareto's principle as well. Yeah, exactly right. It turns out if if lawsuits are free, then somebody's going to figure out how to how to sue all the time. So that's a huge problem. They did pass a law this last year that should make that a little bit better, but it, you know, that doesn't change the structure of the industry in Florida. And they had one point seven billion dollars in underwriting losses last year across the insurance companies that are still there. And these aren't insurance losses that can that that can be pushed onto a Reinsure. I mean, each each lawsuit is its own loss. So that's one issue. The other issue in Florida is simply one of the structure of the state. Remember earlier, I was talking about the balance that insurance companies have to try and you know, to, to try and hit to lay off risks from one to another. Almost all of the value of the real estate in the state of Florida is within five miles of a coast. I mean, obviously, there's Orlando and there's Disney, but most of Florida is susceptible to storm surge, which is hugely impactful. And it is very, very high value coastline property. And I frankly don't know how you solve that. There's no other place. There's not a mountain range in Florida where you could, where you could lay off for a different kind of risk. So that's a structural issue that people have known about for a long time, but it is now really raising its head. Well, the solution they've presented is basically bringing in a state-backed insurer. That's right, but that's an insurer of last resort. So Citizens doesn't want to be in the insurance business. I think that they are insuring about 2.7 million households now. They still require you to go out and get flood insurance on your own. And I don't know if you uh, might believe this about Florida, but a lot of their damage is coming from flood instead of wind. So it is not a solution that brings pricing down that much for a lot of its more vulnerable uh, citizens of the state. So, just so I can have a headline for this episode that's not the fundamentals of reinsurance, uh, why is this one of Warren Buffett's favorite businesses? Well, because if you and and I started by saying that insurance companies and reinsurance companies are not really worried about risk payouts. I think that that is something that is generally misunderstood about insurance companies. I mean, if they never paid anything out, the argument would be, why do we have insurance? So, what they are interested in is pricing risks correctly and then making sure that those risks are as uncorrelated as possible. 
So it's all like a giant science fair experiment involving super catastrophes. So they are not particularly focused on whether they have to pay. What they're focused on is when they have to pay, do they have the risks priced properly so that it doesn't take the company out? And it's one of those things, you know how they describe being an airline pilot as 99% boredom and 1% terror? That's exactly this business. I think I think I need to get you on the phone the next time I have an in, a car insurance claim because it'd be good to remind them that they're not really insure they're not really worried about this small payout so they can <laughs> just right. they can just take care of it. You're worried about the big stuff. <laughs> but I <laughs> I think these this, are not the droids you're looking for. Actually, these are the droids. We're this looking is exactly for. the droid, and this is the check you're supposed to write. So let's stop screwing around. I think that goes into the, your your test, though, of basically how you determine a good versus bad insurance company. Yeah, that's exactly right. And unfortunately, especially with the with, with, with the reinsurance companies, sometimes you find out after the fact. I mean, after Hurricane Katrina, which on a uh, inflation adjusted basis is still the largest single event of loss ever. That actually got into the retrocessionaries. And uh, there's a very famous case of one called the PXRE group, which didn't have enough money to pay off uh, to pay off its claims because the claims just absolutely overwhelmed it. You could say because they they poorly balanced out the risk, but I think Katrina was one of those catastrophes that defined the next generation of them. But in general, for reinsurance companies, you're looking for a rather low cost to provide the insurance itself. As always, people on the program may own stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.